gosh, why do these Marxists only care about workers? Mm. Why do they think <laughs> workers' suffering is more important than mm -hmm. anybody else's suffering? And, of course, nobody ever said that, <laughs> right? You, know? <laughs> you made up a guy. You did make right. up a guy. To Absolutely made up a guy. Yeah. philosophy. I'm Will. Here with me today is Gil, Lillian, and Owen. Hello. Hi. Hey, everyone. And for day, today's episode, we're excited to be joined by a special guest, Professor Vanessa Wills. Hey, Vanessa, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to join you folks. We're excited to have you. So today, we're going to be discussing um, Vanessa's article, what could it mean to say capitalism causes racism and sexism? Personally, I'm very excited to talk about this article. As I told Vanessa over email, I've taught it no less than three times in three different classes. I think in this extraordinarily rich text that I'll try to you know, boil down rather quickly and then we can you know, hear from Vanessa. So basically in this article, Vanessa wants to challenge critiques of Marxism that it is quote-unquote class reductionists, and thus can only think of sexism and racism as either epiphenomenal or think that, you know, there is something special about the identity of class that justifies using it as, you know, the analytic framework. Pretty much the way that Vanessa perceives is she tries to show that these critiques actually misunderstand the fundamental premises of Marxism, which, as she puts it, is, you know, a class-centered theory, but can be better clarified as a production-centered theory. The idea is that you know, Marxism pays attention to, one, the fact that for any society to persist, it must meet certain organic needs. These organic needs can be met in a variety of forms and manners. And so if we're going to understand how society meets these needs, we look at how production is formed. When we look at how production is formed, Vanessa pushes us to see that you know, the historical materialism of Marxism pushes us to look at what form labor takes in historically specific societies. And so part of what you know, Vanessa, I take her to be doing is one, we need not understand Marxism as talking about an abstract labor as such. Rather, what Marxism pushes us to ask is, given what a society needs to do in order to persist, what particular form does this labor take? Once we look at that, we can also see that the ideas people have about the form labor takes can be diverse and can certainly have effects on our social practices. And so from there, she kind of builds the idea that if we're going to answer the question of what could it mean to say that capitalism causes racism and sexism, I take her point to be, we'll have to understand what it means for capitalism to be 
in my sort of technical language, a formative cause. And what she pushes us to see is that we need not think that capitalism causes racism and or sexism in these three ways. We need not think that what we are saying is that capitalism is essentially racist or sexist. We need not think that capitalism is the agent that causes there to be racism and sexism. And we also need not think that you know, the purpose of capitalism is the perpetuation of racism and sexism. So once we take those three options off the table, what are we left with? What she thinks we are left with is that capitalism shapes the social conditions under which sexism and racism happens. And what that would mean, if we think that you know, there is no labor in itself, there is labor in particular forms, that means that there's no sexism or racism in itself. There's sex and racism in particular forms. And given that we live in a capitalist society that's mediated by class relations, we should look at how that forms and shapes sexism and racism, even though sexism you know, antedates capitalist societies and racism cannot simply be reduced to the ongoing need to extract surplus value. This also allows her to justify using Marxism as an analytic frame because it allows us to make a distinction between oppression that may be accorded to sexism and racism based on identity categories and exploitation that happens in this particular form of labor that's mediated in class relations. And so in that rather cursory overview of what Vanessa does, and I hope I didn't butcher the argument too much, we can see her meeting the two types of fundamental critiques. Epiphenomenalism, insofar as she says we have no reason of thinking that racism, sexism can't have effects in society or that they are simply derived from capitalism. And she answers the second critique, which is justifying why class actually does have a different theoretical role in how we understand racism and sexism. And that's through understanding the distinction between oppression and exploitation, between understanding you know, injustices related to identity and injustice that emerges from the definite form and social relations of labor. So I hope that that was you know, a, a clear enough overview. I'm really excited to talk about this, this article because I, it seems you know, there's always perennially discussions of how do we think about other isms in relation to capitalism. And the first question I'd like to ask you all, you, Vanessa, to get us going is, so why did you want to write this um, article? What, what is like the one takeaway you would like our listeners and a reader of your article to get from what you put down? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, and so there were, there's actually two answers to that question. One of them very practical. So I, again and again in talks or in the course of other work, would happen upon moments in the, in dialogue where I had to unteach this received wisdom that Marxism is inherently class reductionist and regards identity-based oppression as inessential, immaterial, unimportant. Uh, and so I just was t tired of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wouldn't it be great 
if I wrote a paper and then I could point to the paper and take the time to explain in, in detail uh, what I think the answer to that question is. And, and the central takeaway for me is that already to, to think of Marxism as at bottom a theory of and about just class, that Marxism is the class theory. And then you need other theories if you're going to understand other categories. That, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe, but that's not what Marx thinks he's doing. It's not what Marxist <laughs> theorists typically think they're doing. You know, we, and certainly I, think that we're developing a method and a theory that can explain all of being with a capital B. Uh, we don't think you need to go mm -hmm. anywhere else <laughs> for, for answers. Um, and so it's a true uh, unitary theory, if you it's will. It's a true, Let's go. right, <laughs> right. And so if and so, um, I wanted to demonstrate some of my reasons, anyway, for thinking that that is the case. And it's clearly not plausible if the theory actually does just talk about class. But that's not the sort of um, the central category, actually, the category is labor, production, uh, human uh, self-changing, and uh, productive interaction with the world. That's the central category. That's the process that encapsulates all of being. And, and it's, it's through that lens that we're able to make these kinds of judgments and analyses about various aspects of being, including identity and identity-based oppression. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the claim that Marxism is actually a totalizing theory of uh, be being yeah. as such and as a whole. Yeah, <laughs> love it. You, you have welcome friends yeah, here. Yeah. I yeah. literally wrote in one of you the margins. Came to the right I was just like, spot, yeah. Vanessa. I was like, Vanessa, are you cooking about totality? Yeah, we're doing here? Yes. Yes. Exactly. It's good stuff. Actually, though, I did want to ask you to. Um, uh, love the article, by the way. And again, thanks for coming. Thank um, you. I I wanted to ask you to elaborate a little bit on a point you make in a few places in the piece. And it, you start, sort of touched on it a little bit in your answer to Will just now, which is that you want to say that Marxist theory is sometimes adequately described as a class-based theory, but you suggest that, in fact, a better, more adequate characterization is that it's a production-based theory. So could you explain a little bit what you mean with this distinction and sort of why you see this as uh, um, a distinction worth making, what sometimes class-based leaves out of the picture that you think production-based is, is more apt for describing? Right, yeah, and, and class-based is, I, I want to say, it's correct. It's not wrong. So to the extent that Marxism is a class-based theory, which is a large extent, of course, it's because the emergence of class-based society, and in particular, its instantiation in capitalism, this, this sort of extreme and um, highly developed form of class-based society, that is the economic arrangement that allows certain things about the universal character of human nature to be seen. So it's class-based in the sense that it is the emergence of capitalism as a historical phenomenon that places Marx and Marxists and in the position 
to be able to make these claims now about what human life is, how we make it, how we can change it, et cetera, and so forth. But what we learn right, through that lens is something about the universality of, of humanity. And the universality of humanity inheres in labor, inheres in the fact that uh, our lives, our activity, our practices, that these are all things that human beings produce and could produce differently. So that, that I take to be the, the relationship between those two terms as I use them. Yeah, just real quick, what, what I really like about what you do here is, you know, there's one way of understanding Marxism, and I, I don't necessarily think that this is correct, but, you know, someone might think Marxism is actually only a study of this version of society. But when you look at, you know, the German ideology and all of that, Marx and Engels seem to think, no, 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 no. We actually have a way of understanding what must hold for all societies and also see what is distinctive and historically specific about those societies. So that, that kind of widens the ambition of it. But when you say production-based, you don't me only mean, not merely, you don't only mean production of this widget or this commodity. Right. You mean you know, the, the creative character of human labor. And so you say, well, we even produce our ideas in order to yeah. understand and relate to one another. And so the ambit of production is capacious here. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly right. I take this paper to be a, a presentation of the kinds of thoughts you might have if you take seriously the notion that all of human social existence is produced by human beings. And so... Um, if you take seriously the notion that the oppression of women and the existence of sexism are not just natural, biologically dictated facts of human existence, but themselves have a history and historical emergence. And actually, kind of circling back for a moment to the question you asked me earlier about why write this paper, one of the things that frustrated me was that philosophers are extremely well-versed in the vagaries and nuances of causation. Uh, like this is this is our bread and butter. <laughs> but it's all a reason of a sudden, for being. That's the it's, thing. Yeah, it's literally it's what we do. And all of a sudden, when it's time to dismiss Marx. The only kind of causation <laughs> he could have access to is epiphenomenalism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that doesn't make any yeah. sense. That's the only thing that Marx and Marxists could mean when they say this thing causes the, like, where are the philosophers of physics? You know, like, where mm -hmm. are you? Like, we mm -hmm. need help. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we know that causation <laughs> uh, works in all sorts of, of ways, and there's various things one might mean by it. And that's that was part of the rationale behind the title, right? What could it mean? Well, it could mean epiphenomenalism. It could mean a very simplistic and blunt um, kind of like, oh yeah, if you just do away with with capitalism, it's all it's all all the bad stuff goes away. Or that somehow, if it weren't for capitalism, the bad stuff would have never been here. <laughs> and sure, it's I mean, I think it's it's plain that if that's what Marx means, and if that's what Marxists mean, it can't be correct. Mm -hmm. But but it also depends on a really impoverished and abstract 
notion of capitalism. So one of the sort of rival interpretations I take up in that article uh, says, well, you know, capitalism by definition, right? Uh, yeah, or, or the line. definition <laughs> of capitalism, right, doesn't cause racism. I'm like, who said it did? <laughs> you know, like, when did like, we become linguistic idealists? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and what I mean by capitalism, or at least when I say that labor has a definite appearance is that is that there's literally a guy <laughs> there's a guy <laughs> he, he signs your checks <laughs> right i'm talking about your the relationship jerry. between you and that guy <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, jerry. right uh this is you know when we talk about uh capitalism i mean this this all of this i'm waiting you can't this is a audio podcast so the listeners cannot see me moving my arm in a in a big circle of being right i mean i mean this i mean our our contemporary human social environment that in which the by far the most dominant economic mode is capitalism even those uh communities that have uh forms of life that are not capitalist by themselves are heavily influenced by capitalism as it in, as it encroaches into rainforests and boils the earth and right does all the things that it does to destroy and and to bring and to increasingly bring people into a capitalist system right so that's the thing i'm talking about this expansive whole of human life that has as its as its sort of organizing principle the sale and purchase of labor power and of other commodities. Mm-hmm. How is it that, that how is it that these ident- forms of identity-based oppression emerge within that? It'll be real quick. This is this is my smug moment. Any of my students watching, I told y'all <laughs> Vanessa Wills was talking about complicated questions around causation. I love that you said it because I was going to be like Vanessa, like she's working with those four different types of causation. Aristotle, like you, yeah. material, efficient, final, and she's like, no, 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 it's formative ca- causation. Yeah. You know, it's that capitalism mm-hmm. renders mm-hmm. this definite shape. So I love that you mm-hmm. said it. I was right. <laughs> Do my true. evaluations. Funny, I, you know, it's. Funny. Funny, I hadn't thought about it, but even though the title is about cause and and I'm saying like here's what it means to cause, I don't actually in the course of the paper say, you know, about cause. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, so that's interesting. It remains somewhat implicit in this yeah. Yeah, I mean it's also like, you know, Marx considered Aristotle a materialist homie, you know? So Right. Mm-hmm. Um I actually wanted to ask about epiphenomenalism. It's not, I mean, I think it's kind of a more of a foil in your argument, but just out of curiosity, because I, I think this is something both our listeners and I've certainly heard, if you've ever talked about these topics in public mm-hmm. before, as you say, um, you will encounter the language of epiphenomenalism. And I'm wondering if like, you know, or anyone knows, like why that that word got attached to Marxist theory because like like where that accusation came from and like why that word like there's a there's there's a number of other words you could use to talk about like I don't feel like you're thinking about the cause in a sufficiently strong way but epiphenomenalism is like awfully specific it's like part of like philosophy of mind you know and it's Mm -hmm. like 
what happens. Like, I think that I, I looked this up recently, like when the mind, like the metaphor is of like a steam engine. Okay. Imagine your brain is a steam engine and you like let out steam and then, but the steam isn't going to like make the engine run. It's the epiphenomenon is it's like a discharge and or so it's like your emotions aren't like, I don't know, there's some way of talking about this in philosophy of mind that like makes that metaphor make sense. This is obviously not <laughs> like where I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable, but that's where it I just, first encountered it too, though. but it, yeah. it seemed, but like, there's something peculiar about, this is not a popular theory of causation in philosophy of mind. Right. <laughs> you know, so, right. so it's there's something completely some, esoteric. <laughs> why saddle marks with it? Yeah. Yeah. So weird. like, I'm just curious, like if, uh, to get you to expand on that or hypothesize about why something that like, it is a philosophical view, but I, I remember the reason I think I know anything about this is I like TA'd a philosophy of mind course once. And I had like, a, I read a textbook and it was like, you know, it's the kind of thing that's not favored. And I'm like, hold on, how does this reappear for all of us doing all this other work and kind of become this thing in the, in the background? That's, that might be more of like an ethnographical question or an intellectual history question, but it's not obvious that it's like a good fit for the subject matter to begin with, which is why I think like you bringing that up is you're saying something sort of obvious that these are not really you're not talking about the same thing yeah I don't so I don't know I I couldn't name sort of historically who originated this criticism as a criticism of Marxist theory but I do have thoughts about uh sort of who it benefits and what it's useful for and it's specifically useful for separating class struggle Mm -hmm. from other struggles Um, So if what you're trying to do, if what one is trying to do is to hammer home the point that, uh, hey, you anti-racists, hey, you anti-sexists, hey, you who want queer liberation, you name it, you name it. Um, These are uh, the Marxists, their explanation about why the thing they're doing is connected to what you're doing is stupid <laughs> and insulting to your movement. It's very, it's very useful in that kind of dialogue, and and it, um, you know, it gets people's hackles up. Like I'm reminded of the presidential debates between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders because she actually threw. who's not a Marxist, you know, but she threw this accusation against him. She said, well, if we got rid of capitalism, or I think she said the banks banks or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, She was like, if we got rid of the banks, if we got rid of the banks tomorrow, there would still be sexism. And it's like, Okay. Therefore, what? Right. Ergo. And you just want to say, qui bono? Who benefits from this position, Hillary? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think it serves this really important purpose of making making Marx. I mean, anything to make Marxism look dumb, right? Unappealing and dumb, and then to draw a hard like put up a wall between it and other movements. I, I wanted to ask you just like to, to come back to just the way you talk about class and what and how you differentiate class from 
identity-based oppression, as you call it, right? It's because we're very used to seeing those lists with the commas, right? Like in DEI statements, especially, they'll be like, we don't discriminate on the basis of like, you know, race, uh, gender, uh, you know, ability, class. Um, and it puts class in where it seems like it doesn't actually really belong, I mean, or at least maybe part of it does. And so I was interested in, in, in the paper in the way in which you actually did something really, really helpful, which is to clearly articulate that part of what class is does like can be uh, made right. amenable with these identity based with these identity based markers yes. classism right uh what how one speaks how one looks where one went to school and all these where one lives and, and all social this stuff. signifiers exactly social signifiers but it's also and i think like much more importantly something else <laughs> a position in a production process mm -hmm. and so i was just wondering if you could say a little bit about how what the purpose and effects of embedding it in that identity list is because I don't I don't I don't think it's an innocent uh, um, choice yes. to put it in there in that way. Uh, and also how just a little bit more about how you see what how you see them being differentiated and why you think it's really important to differentiate it still maintaining that question is important and not entirely exhausted by like capitalism, but still seeing something unique and specific about class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so in that, I I'll say right off the bat that one of the things that influences me most in my position on this is actually a paper by uh, sociologist Martha Jimenez, Marxism and Class, Gender and Race, Rethinking the Trilogy, which is like one of my favorite papers. <laughs> and um, so I'm going to, yeah, I love that paper. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to say some things in response to that question, but I just want to flag that like um, some of it I thought of myself, but, but mostly very influenced by um, her paper, which I find very convincing. So there, I, I, it really goes back to an, a good old-fashioned distinction between matter and ideas, and th where the sort of emphasis on thinking about class as another form of oppression, just like racism, sexism, and so on, is a an approach that largely emerges out of standpoint theory perspectives and for feminist standpoint theory in in particular sort of uh, models itself on the kind of standpoint theory that you find emerging out of somebody like you know Lukács's interpretations of Marx right standpoint of the poetry. and so Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so and so the thought there being, well, Marxism is doing theory from the point of view of the proletariat and this notion of the proletariat, that there's that there's a particular kind of perspective you get on reality from from that from that point of view. And so then the th then the thought is well what's so special about the proletariat why do what you know why do they get a privileged point of view uh, you know I, why I not see women? things too <laughs> right yeah. i see things too right so why not women why not black people why not you know you name it you can go down the list and this also i think gets taken up in some intersectionality theory where there's a a strong emphasis on 
the sort of felt subjective lived experience of oppression as a source of data about the world, um, which it is, right, for sure, right? But the thing that in Marxist theory is supposed to make the proletarian standpoint one that uh, is revelatory, right, in some deep way, is not the mere fact that workers are having a bad time, right? <laughs> it's not just the kind of felt subjective misery of working for a wage under capitalism. Uh, what's distinctive about the working class perspective suck, is yeah. that it is, which does <laughs> suck, right? Yes. Um, Great. But what's, yeah. what's distinctive is not the internal report of a psychological state, it is the ability to do a kind of uh, scientific analysis of the relationship between human beings and their world of the of the type that is made possible when you look at the world from the point of view of a productive being right it's the it's the production that workers are doing that is distinctive right and that is supposed to give us uh insight into what kind of method we might pursue in order to know the world right it's the productive uh activity of workers that informs marx's concept of historical materialism and, and informs things like that he says for example in places like um the theses on Feuerbach, right, or or anywhere that he says that sort of abstract contemplation is not going to uh, give us insight into the nature of the world. We have to be involved in the work of actually attempting to change the world, right, in order to have the, the scientific knowledge. And there Marx is, I think, thinking about the exact same kind of question that Kant is thinking of, right? What what makes scientific knowledge of the world mm -hmm. possible if it's mm -hmm. possible? And for Marx, the answer is labor, it turns out, right? Um, this sort mm -hmm. of conscious, interactive activity of human self-changing. Now, that you know, we've gotten very far away now from like, you know, the fact that I feel terrible when I'm exploited at work, when I'm mistreated. All of that is important and useful, but it's not actually the thing that Marx thinks gives a scientific insight into the world. And so mm -hmm. um, so when we when we talk about class, oftentimes a sort of the move to assimilate class as just another form of oppression like the others, all of which are different ways of suffering. Yes, they, they mm. are, right? And our theory has to include all of that. But that is not, I mean, listen, I don't know if it's right or wrong. It's not Marxism, right? It's not, you know, it's, we can't. And so, and the reason that matters is that once class is assimilated to other, just like a form of oppression and just another way of suffering, then the question comes up, gosh, why do these Marxists only care about workers? Mm. Why do they <laughs> think workers' suffering is more important than mm -hmm. anybody else's suffering? And of course, nobody ever said that, <laughs> right? <laughs> you made up a guy. You did make right. up a guy. To Absolutely yeah. made up a guy. Yeah. You made up a guy, right? <laughs> you know, nobody ever, nobody ever said that. 
that, but you know, because you 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 begin to sort of lose sight of what of what the target of critique is supposed to be, mm. and then furthermore, you know, the answer to the question why is this person suffering more interesting or important just because they're a worker? Well, obviously it isn't, no. right? And so you you hop, skip, and a jump to. Oh, the Marxists mm -hmm. are just on one. They have no <laughs> idea what they're doing, right? <laughs> so I think this is one of the kind of most interesting and or provocative ideas mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the method you've been presenting. Like what makes the analysis scientific and it turns out to be labor. And then from there, I mean, what I just heard, and you can tell me if I am hearing this mm -hmm. wrong, is that there's some kind of separation. Like when you start saying we get further afield, when we start asking like, oh, why do they only think this matters or um, what's more important? Like what I hear when those questions occur to me is like a very strong moralism that is primarily thinking that suffering has to be like sufficiently bad in order to see it as a, as oppression. Um, and there is a way in which you can also think about exploitation this way. If you don't think about it in the labor way, which is if you ever read analytical like papers about exploitation or anthologies about exploitation, that it, there's a couple that exist exploitation is like uniformly what happens when we start seeing it is being like really shitty. So like expo right. exploitation is happening in sweatshops, like sweatshop labor is exploitation. And like, this always strikes me as being like really, I mean, it's, it is straightforwardly very frustrating, but it strikes me as like largely missing the point because in a Marxian analysis, actually the most productive labor is going to be the most exploited rate labor. Like the rate of exploitation is going to be higher for the most productive and capital intensive labors. So those are often going to be the most efficient industries. They're going to make the industries that make the most money. So there's like an argument where like the most high tech workers are like the most exploited workers. Right, right. And they might be not the, they might be far from the worst off workers. They could be doing quite well for themselves individually. They could do very well. They're not poor, um, yeah, but they're exploited. But they're exploited. Mm -hmm. So I don't, so like there's this interesting thing where like I do think that exploitation can be a normative term. Like there's something wrong with exploitation. I think Marx is like pretty polemical about it. I, I think that all of our intuitions about it probably not being good are probably <laughs> warranted. But, okay. But it does also have a more scientific meaning. It's a way of talking about extracting surplus and therefore the mode and means of extracting a surplus have laws of motion and so on and so forth. So what it's doing is, as you're saying, putting together a causal story for you. And when I hear people start saying, like when it starts being the, uh, you know, the, so analogously to sweatshop labor, the same story gets told with oppression. So like something just seems worse and therefore somehow then it starts to not fit into the Marxian story. And I think it's basically right to be like, it's already largely missing the point at that point in the conver conversation. Like it's, it's like already methodologically off track. So I'm going to wind my way to a question. Sorry. Um, the winding question is, what is it that makes the labor perspective scientific. Cause I like that idea. I'm quite attached to it, but like, actually I think that is 
sort of difficult to defend. Like that's not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. totally obvious, but I, I would like to think it's true. Yeah. I mean, so I think that for Marx, so I mentioned earlier sort of in passing that I think that he's standing in a tradition that is attempting to answer the same question Kant posed, right? What makes science possible? And um, and so there's this, the, so there's this question of like, I have my mind inside here and the world's outside there, right? How do I how do I know? How can I guarantee that the thoughts that I have match what's what's really out there in it in itself? And the I think the short story for Marx is that it has to do with what he refers to at some points as the metabolizing character of labor. That I am in the process that I'm always in the process of humanizing the world of of making it part of myself and I and we do that at the level of the species that we are constantly conf- uh, sort of confronting a world that seems alien but then uh, bringing it under our control integrating it into our sort of habits and activities and process of of living and and being with one another and being in the world and that process is something that we can learn about and know about you know from the inside and as we uh, relate to it as our own product and so then that question of um, how can I know things about the world for Marx the answer is by overcoming that seeming separation between yourself and the world by 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 alighting it right by abolishing it um, right by doing and, and it's through the activity of labor that we that we do this that we integrate the objects in the external world into part of a living process with us right so that we're all part of one this one sort of uh, integrated process and um, uh, I think the the notion of nature as our inorganic body, right, is 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 there this idea of sort of expanding, expanding the self, but doing that not in an individualistic way, but in a way that is only possible through a kind of shared life of the species, which is also something that we have to create and produce this sense of uh, our actually existing as as a single species that is aware of having um, shared conditions of flourishing and in a position to reason about what we ought to do collectively in order to uh, safeguard our continued existence. Now, beyond that, Mar- I think that for Marx, beyond that, you know, the notion that there'd be something that's knowable, but that human beings cannot have that kind of interactive process with right that productive activity that uh, that overcomes and and elides this kind of apparent gap or space between ourselves and the world. Uh, anything be uh, that that is not susceptible to being integrated into our life process as a species in that way. I think Marx does think is sort of beyond the realm of science. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that. This is his criticism of atheism, 
for example. So he says at various points that he's not an atheist. Um, he said in one of my favorite lines of, of Marx, he writes in a letter that the atheists remind him of a child going around <laughs> bragging that he's not afraid of the boogeyman. <laughs> you know, uh, so he says, this is so ridiculous. Um, and great. and Marx's the sort of core, uh, I think, of Marx's um, criticism there oh. is that the notion of this supernatural God is inherent it's inherently not the sort of thing that could be integrated into this material process that is the sort of thing that we could know in in, in the matter of self-knowledge right or and in, in the matter of producing and and reproducing and changing the things that's integrated with our life activity in a way that makes it knowable for us so I, I think science for Marx is closely, really i mean is i mean there's a way there's a way of saying if i really wanted to be provocative i would say like science and labor are, are almost the same for yeah. Marx, right? It's the same process of knowing and changing and interacting um, with the world and bringing about changes that we want to see and doing that in a way that's informed by our past understanding of the world. That's so great. Can I follow up on that a little bit? Uh, so there's like the co a couple of things come to mind. Uh, one is that we've been talking about con uh, Marx in a very Kantian mode, which I like, and I am going to want to actually come back to this, like maybe at the very end of the discussion, but thinking about the conditions for the possibility of science, Kant's thinking specifically about the natural science. He's looking at like, you know, Newtonian physics and his answer to how we know nature is, well, it's what we put into it, right? It's the categories themselves that structure nature as something objective that we can know in this scientific way. And that's totally like, that's idealist in this obvious sense where we're not actually talking about any material interaction. I do think you're right that Marx is like asking that same question, but it's about material interaction with the real material bases for the possibility of production and reproduction of our lives and existences. And I liked your point that like, in a way he's kind of Hegelian now, not Kantian by saying, no, that in yeah. itself, like that's either not a thing or Good news, mm -hmm. you made that up too. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, like, what are you talking about, buddy? Uh, it's kind of a non-issue. But that's where the point, the importance of history yeah. there, right? It isn't any as such. It turns out in different formations, we do still do this, but we accomplish it in different ways. And so we're still knowing what it is we as a society are doing when we're engaging with nature in order to produce ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just, sorry, I'll yeah. just add, I mean, there's another great bit of Marx where he says that uh, the, the this-sidedness of our thinking has to be proved in practice. Mm -hmm. Right. That and I have a so I have a book coming out in a couple months about Marx and Congrats. ethics. Yay. And thank you. Yay. Right. And uh, and one of the things that I, I I talk about there is is this notion that, as I said, that this sidedness of our thinking um, has to be demonstrated in practice. And one of the things I talk about in the Marx and ethics book is this notion that philosophy can present <laughs> questions. But in this sort of a continuum in a way, but like cannot answer them, right? Cannot answer them, cannot resolve them, right? Uh, because philosophy is the art of contemplation. That's what it is. <laughs> That's what it's literally what it is. And ultimately, in order to have uh, a scientific knowledge of the world, you have to you know, you have to get out there and 
try to change it. Yeah. It's a great thing to say after our Perry Anderson episode. <laughs> yeah, it's truly. Um, I did want to ask you to expand in a little bit, and this is this is a nice segue, I think, because in the article in several places, you're you're saying, look, like I'm talking in some cases about ideas and the historical materials position is not that ideas, not real, right? They're not a thing. It's just like, you know, material reality is what's what and ideas have no part to play. And so, you know, we can think in, again, terms here of uh, like, what what is the specific causal mechanism? Is it supervenient? Is it, you know, mm -hmm. reflecting back on, you know, structural overdetermination? But you use the language in a really interesting moment of intellectual metabolism, right? Taking up this like idea from Marx that I think he gets from biologists at the time. Uh, metabolism and say there's also an intellectual metabolism there's a way that like ideas are things that we consume in the course of our production and produce in the course of our self-reproduction and that itself has material effects and this is like a way of thinking about a non-reductive materialist account of ideas so I was just wondering if you could like talk a little bit about that and you know why it's important not to collapse into the kind of reductive materialism that Marxism is alleged to do sometimes. Right. So I've been thinking recently more and more about the base and superstructure metaphor. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, you know, it's handy in a pinch, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but I think that it can really, um, I, I think sometimes people take it a bit too seriously. They think that that sort of captures the, be all end all of, of Marxist uh, metaphysics about the relationship between matter and ideas because, I mean, I, I prefer a, a kind of understanding of human life as a totality that is permeated, maybe is the right word, or or or, or that that is gener that is all generated right through this activity of of labor, and if you think about it like. In, in that sense, you know, is a, is a sort of like, I don't know, maybe this like this sort of glowing heart of the the forge, <laughs> you know, at this at the center. Right. And um, and and so then the thought isn't, oh, that there's this kind of um, this realm of ideas floating above freely, <laughs> sort of like, you know, like mist off into into the heavens. Right. But rather that those ideas are themselves, right, also all created by the very same process that's producing the material stuff, right? The material stuff comes from somewhere as well, just like the ideas do. And, and so they're, they're, they're unified, they're knit together um, by their origin in human productive activity. And so the notion that the, I mean, the, the other thing that, so before I wrote this paper, I think it was the summer before I wrote this paper, I did a, a reading group on Hegel's logic with uh, two other um, Hegelians, right? <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't, you know, I had read the logic before, but uh, I, I, when I think about this paper, um, it's clear to me that this paper is written the way it is because I had recently read, <laughs> reread the logic. Yes, yeah. And, and I don't think it, I think it would have been hard for me to write this paper in the way I did 
without reading the logic. So it's very, very Leninist in mm -hmm. that sense, right? Len, you know, this notion that you can't understand Marx until you sit down and read the and read Hegel's logic. And and the reason I say that is because the notion that an appearance, that to call something an appearance, <laughs> is to say that it's not right, real yeah. <laughs> and it don't matter. <laughs> is like banana totally. pants, <laughs> right? And and it is a completely non-Marxist, non-Hegelian, not dialectical. I mean, it is it is like um, it, it is just so antithetical to Marxist theory to say like, oh well, the Marxists think that racism is an appearance. Um, in classes, they think it's a way that capitalism manifests, and so therefore they so think that real, racism yeah. isn't real. <laughs> and I was like, that is, I mean, it's totally bananas, right? I mean, like, you know, there's a, like in Hegel, of course, the essence appears, right? I mean, it's, and it's the only way that, it's the, the only way you're ever able to know anything about the essence is by looking at appear appearances are all we yeah. got. Appearances are, that's what we see. We, enter, we encounter the appearances. It's through the appearances that we learn something about the essential nature of things or of a society, a system, or a moment in human history. And so so that was that was a that was hugely sort of generative, you know, like that trying to trying to explain that to say that this is a manifestation of a an essential economic process or relation is not to say that it's not real or, or that it's just an illusion. That's not what appearances are. The listeners cannot see so me back, throwing baby. my hands yeah. up in, yeah, throwing my hands up in, in like utter frustration. I'm like, that's not what an appearance is. Um, <laughs> but I, I think what, what's really great about what you do with the appearance essence distinction is you, I love your, your example of sexism. So one way someone might ding Marxism and say, well, ho, 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 Marxist, sexism has appeared in all forms of society. So, you know, actually nothing really changed with capitalism. <laughs> you know, people still didn't like women. But the point is you move from the appearance to ask what its essential structure is. And it turns out, and you give like concrete examples, how sexism, you know, it, its structure in say a, a, a pre-capitalist society, you know, will have different you will have a different foundation in the productive process than, say, in capitalist societies where in order for a, a woman to reproduce herself, she has to be mediated by a wage. And sometimes that wage is mediated by being married to a man. And you know, these can generate all sorts of patriarchal relationships of, of, of dependency, at least. And we want to say that that is definitely at least different than, say, a historical society where no one earns a wage, you just work the land for a lord who comes <laughs> around every now and then. And so it's also a way of trying to say, well, what is historically specific about how this form of sexism appears, or how this form of racism appears? And that, that seems to be how you're answering the question of what could it mean to say that capitalism causes racism and sexism isn't to say that capitalism instigated it, but it certainly, insofar as capitalism 
radically reorganizes our productive relations yes. by mediating them through class in a way that they weren't necessarily mediated, you know, before in previous versions of society that weren't capitalist. This can't but have an effect on the structure that sexism and racism obtains. And so fascinatingly, it turns out the people who try to say that Marxism can't deal with racism and sexism, they're the ones who are being abstract and ideal. Oh my you know, you're either committed yes. to the idea that racism and sexism Get are em, permanent, Will. constant features. <laughs> oh, permanent. I'm cooking, I'm cooking, but it's because Get of Vanessa em. Williams. You're either committed <laughs> to the idea that sexism and racism are permanent human constants and thus cannot be changed, and so there's nothing that you can do about them, or you can't explain them because they just randomly appeared in society. No, mm -hmm. don't try to say why, but I guess they're there because people just, you know, wanted to be mean to other people. This is at least a coherent framework of saying, well, what is racism doing here without saying something like, oh, to be capitalist is to be racist. That doesn't necessarily follow at all. Right. It doesn't mean of any, I mean, so, you know, in, in actual fact, they mostly, but, but yeah, but there's nothing sort of inherent in the category that says something about the right. psychological makeup of any individual person. And, uh, and, and, and the, the, you know, the, the hope, the thought is that in understanding how it is that sexism is generated in this particular economic form, we then also have tools that allow us to go backward and understand how it is that other kinds of economic forms of life sustained other kinds of relationships between men and women, sometimes sexist ones, sometimes ones that were not sexist, of course, right? Ones that where mm -hmm. the oppression of women was actually absent from certain societies. And yeah, I mean, I think that, the, well, the point that you made about the permanence is this is one of my big sort of bugbears, right? Of like, with race, like one of my criticisms of certain kinds of like whiteness theory is that, you know, mm -hmm. whiteness does this, whiteness does that. Whiteness is this demiurge that has produced the modern world. I start thinking, well, damn. Is this whiteness in the room with us right now? Like, well, I mean, it's like, like it's whiteness in the so room God with us right now. <laughs> but also, but right, oh, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, well, damn, damn you know, if it did all of that, then <laughs> I don't know. Like, like, we need to abandon class for and try to get on his right. side. <laughs> like, Did you guys ever watch like Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the last season where she's talking, like it's the evil. We're a bunch of nerds of a certain age, of course. Yeah, come we on. Yeah, okay. This is like really, I, this is really my shit. I was just putting myself out there. Um, but you know, like the last, the season seven when she, it's like the evil, like the evil, the one. Yeah. And like it's really unclear how to fight it's it. It's just abstract. <laughs> yeah, it's really and then like at some point, like at the it. end of the season, they do end up like under the school and the hellmouth. But like it's really unclear up until that point how you were gonna do anything about this like primordial evil. Right. That's like what I just thought of. That's yeah, whiteness. that's white. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> if it's just this abstract, you know, or the or you know, and that or manifests in I guess it always manifests in reactionary ways but let's look at at the case of women right um 
one way that this manifests is in the logic of transphobia, because then, it, you know, um, sexism and the oppression of women becomes, well, it didn't emerge historically, so where did it come from? It must just be something about the DNA of men, right? And that sort of idea that there's something biologically coded about men that makes them dangerous and hateful mm -hmm. towards women, that then ends up being the logic that, you know, the, the what do they call themselves? Gender criticals. Uh, the gender criticals, yeah. yeah. That, that ends up being the logic that the gender criticals use to, like, explain why they're transphobic, right? Yeah. And why they don't want to recognize the... Um, the gender identity of other human beings and so and so this 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 like the distinction between understanding these things as historically emergent things that are produced under certain circumstances that human beings have agency over or understanding them as just these right. natural permanent states of affair you know it really is the like this this question of the historicity of being, it is the decisive question between progressive and reactionary viewpoints. And it has consequences, it seems, from what you're saying, not just theoretically, but politically. And I'd mm -hmm. like you just to say a little bit uh, about that as we're wrapping up, because I, I, one thing I do love about how you wrote your paper is you don't keep us waiting. You're yeah. like, so, you know, <laughs> will uh, overcoming capitalism all of a sudden make racism and sexism, you know, go out? Most people would be like, well, wait till the end of the paper to find right. out. You're like, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to, like, not, tease I'm not you. even going to hold you. Right. No, your answer is no, but <laughs> Help. help yeah <laughs> right. and i'd like you to say a bit about these political because clearly the theory is on your mind but i think it's also clear that the politics are as well and so part of what you want to say about sexism and racism is if it was historically emergent and produced by human beings it is at least logically conceivable that we can also reproduce them out of existence and so i'd like mm -hmm. you to say a bit about that while you're also saying why is your answer that you know abolishing capitalism even if it won't solve all of our problems as it concerns racism sexism why would it help what if i'm skeptical <laughs> or what if i'm like someone who just thinks no once you do that that's utopia we emerge we become <laughs> angels you know <laughs> yeah so i it, it'll help i think it'll help quite a bit because we uh, un under capitalism, power is concentrated in the hands of people who have absolutely nothing to gain from the abolition of identity-based oppression and who have everything to lose. Identity-based oppression is, uh, I mean, one of the things that follows from understanding the interrelationship between identity-based oppression and economic exploitation is that, of course, identity-based oppression does a lot to condition the uh, material reality of uh, economic exploitation. It makes it more possible. It, it organizes it. It helps to distract working people from the fact of these power dynamics. It, uh, it helps them look across at other workers mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. up at their bosses. It's extremely, extremely useful. And so uh, as long as the power to 
organized society is concentrated in the hands of, of people who have nothing to gain from doing away with identity-based oppression. And more than that, one of the things I point out in the paper is that it's probably going to be really expensive. <laughs> It's probably literally going to cost a lot of money. Um, we can't do this gonna, for free. <laughs> you can't do it. For, you can't do it for free. You're going to have to, you know, whether it's just redistribute uh, redistributive practices, you know, giving people money, right, and giving them resources to to uh, improve their to have improved housing and education access. Um, there's also going to be a huge, just like the amount of education you're going to need to train people to spend time learning history and pedagogy and. And then you're going to have to like have people just have literally the time to learn all this stuff um, that they never knew before. I mean, I've I've had classes where I've had to explain to my student. This is not at GW. This happened at other places. But where I had to explain to them what lynching was, where my students didn't know what lynching was, and then you know their poor little faces when I explained. <laughs> So they were like, they were like, what? That was probably you know? a bit of a bummer day. <laughs> yeah, a they were like, what? You know, like, yeah, but but people are going to have to do that, right? And um, and so and so it's just like a massive undertaking of undoing racism and racist racist ideas, and um, and so and so who's going to pay for that? Right. I mean, who's mm-hmm. going to pay for this thing that, by the way, is going to make it a lot harder to vilify uh, ethnic groups and and sort of enact this social bullying that keeps workers in their place? Not, not Elon Musk, I don't right? think. <laughs> not Elon. Yeah, probably not Elon. Probably not Jeff. No, you so. know, like these people are not going to do even it. Um, <laughs> right. So, like, even just on a very basic level, having access to the resources that are actually needed in order to it, to affect this kind of massive change in society, uh, that's the kind of, we, we need socialism. We need socialism. It's totally impossible under capitalism. The resources can only be released for that purpose when we have a society that uh, actually thinks it's important to do things like anti-racist theory and practice. So I said, yeah, I say no, but it'll help. And and the, the reason, no, so the answer, so the question is, will racism and sexism just fall automatically into the dustbin of history once, once there's a proletarian revolution? And the answer is no, but it'll help. And the no is because like there's, you know, uh, on the one hand, there is the, part of the conditions of possibility of such a revolutionary moment include that working people have dismantled a lot of their own internal uh, racism and sexism, but it won't be completed for the reasons that I mentioned. It takes the actual doing of it is going to take a ton of resources. So there's no reason to think that it would just be automatic. Marx himself warns us yeah, against thinking that, yeah, that the ideas that people have are going to just kind of automatically be great ones. And he, and he, and again, like, like any good materialist, he points out that socialism will be a capitalist product. Mm-hmm. It is something that is produced by capitalist society. And as such, 
can't be anything other than what is made possible by a capitalist society, which is quite a limitation, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. um, but what but what that socialist transformation can do is raise values to the fore that are not simply the value of profit, and instead are values of humanity and of, of freedom and of in, you know, in, real individual flourishing, and can also seize the the means of production, right, and the resources that are necessary in order to transform society so that we really can do away with racism, sexism, and other forms of oppression. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you. That was a wonderful place to end it. That does it for us today. We'd once again like to thank Professor Vanessa Wills for joining us. Vanessa, would you like to tell our audience about either where they can find you online or about anything you've got coming up? You mentioned a book. Yeah, so um, I'm I'm on I'm sighing because I'm on I'm on Twitter or X <laughs> or whatever too. the hell you call Twitter. that thing. <laughs> yeah, um, at VC Wills V C W I L L S and but I'm a very uh, sort of intermittent uh, Twitterer. But yeah, I have a book coming out. It's Marx's Ethical Vision. It's coming out with Oxford University Press and. The um, expected release date for the ebook is in early February and hardcover in April. So I'm I'm excited about it, and I, and everybody should read it. It's a good book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, proud I'm sure of it. we are going to read I'm it. I'm proud well. of it. It's a good book. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. And also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Ross Williams, Rune, Right to Rebel, Zora A., Jake G., Cleveland Leffer, C. Edelston, Matthew Schratz, Andy Balbuena, Courtney Klopper, Julia Tannenbaum, Becky McElvain, Jilly Field, David Rohr, Bowie Zhang, Cole Sacchetto, Thomas Anderson, Cedar, Lindsay V, David Michelson. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos and access to our Discord server. In addition, you can support us by buying some left, What's Left of Philosophy merch, which you can also find through our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.